it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our hosts, Sri Rajkapalan, Peter V.S. Bond, and Brian Gildenberg, Explore how brands and retailers engage consumers in an increasingly digitally driven world. And now, here are the CPG Guys. Hello, and welcome to the CPG Guys podcast, where we explore the omni-channel digital journey of brands and retailers. I'm your co-host, Brian Gildenberg, and when I'm not podcasting, I serve as the CEO of Confluencer Commerce and the America's Managing Director of the Retail Information Network, Retail Cities. Today, I am joined for today's episodes by one of the OGs of CPG and one of the OGs of the CPG Guys podcast. You all know him. You all love him. It's Shree. Shree, welcome. How you doing, man? Hey, Brian. Two weeks feels like I haven't seen you in forever. I think it was a nice warm day in Manhattan at 7.30 a.m. I saw you two weeks ago. Since then, I've traveled 10,000 miles to India and back. <laughs> 
Yes, indeed. And uh, you've uh, you've missed out on the Red Sox and the Yankees dueling it out for last place in the American League East, which is very exciting for both of us. So uh, not a promising season either way. <laughs> Judge is back. I'm a Yankee fan. I feel it. <laughs> well, uh, as you can tell from my background, I am not. Um, so anyway, yeah, now the, uh, to, to use a statistical term, and we're going to do a lot of good analytics talk later, um, I would characterize the Red Sox as an experiment in high-variance mediocrity right now. So um, it's a lot of fun, but they're going to end up 81 and 81. So anyway, um, so mission accomplished. We've uh, made this a baseball podcast that also talks about the consumer package goods industry. But before we get to our guest, who is also sadly a Yankee fan, so I might just hang up, uh, um, I want to <laughs> remind our audience to visit cbgguys.com where they can find links to our podcasts on all the major podcast platforms. And if you are not already doing so, please follow us on LinkedIn. You can join almost 22,000 people uh, where we publish new content almost each and every day of the week, uh, even on the weekends. In particular, please subscribe to the other podcasts in our collective, uh, including the FMCG guys with Daniel Torres Dwyer from Rosario, which uh, covers a lot of the same topics we do, but over in Europe. Um, the CPG Scoop with Lisa Crandall and Jennifer Silverberg, and the newest edition to the podcast featuring some joker named Brian Gildenberg called CPG Guys Fast Forward. We are going to try and launch that on Friday, May 19th. It may be Monday, May 22nd, pending the approval of the first guest is a gentleman named Leon Nicholas, who's the head of uh, industry relations for Westrock. And in the Fast Forward podcast, we're going to be taking a look at some issues that are a little bit adjacent to some of the issues that we talk about every day on the CPG Guys We'll be talking about sort of what else is going on, sort of the why behind things, and also sort of the what's after next in the world. Uh, but on that podcast, the debut, we'll be talking a lot about what's happening in the world of packaging, uh, both in-store packaging, shelf packaging, display management, all that sort of good stuff. So that'll be coming soon. Um, in addition, we're also proud to be the sponsors of Next Up, formerly the Network of Executive Women, whose mission is to advance all women in business and to promote gender equality in the workplace. Um, I just uh, had the pleasure of interviewing Lisa Baird, who's the new CEO of Next Up, for a CPG Guys episode coming soon to an audience near you. Shree, anything I missed in this uh, sort of intro as you usually do this pattern and I'm substituting for you here? Yeah, so the one thing I do want to uh, continue to tell our network here and audience is the CPG Guys is giving away memberships to Next Up. So if you are a female founder or you're part of an organization that does not have sponsorship of Next Up, please do drop an email to contact at cpgguys.com. Again, contact at cpgguys.com and email will make you get set up. Your sponsorship is on us at CPG Guys. Yeah, and uh, and, and we really mean that and really uh, have enjoyed our partnership with Next Up over the time that we've been running it and are very excited about the work that they're going to do. And you know, I'm particularly having had a chance to talk to Lisa a little bit about what, what her plans are for the organization. Very excited to see what's next for Next Up. So uh, without further ado, Shri, what do you think? Should we get to the main event here or should we just keep randomly bantering? You know, we could have randomly bantered if the Red Sox and Yankees were battling for first. Since that's not the case, I suggest we move on. That's true. We'll uh, we'll cast a sideline glance at the catcher in the manner of Aaron Judge and we'll move forward. So um, anyway, today we're going to be joined by our friends from Keen Decision Systems. Keen is a high growth SaaS company that helps Fortune 500 and other marketing leaders make data driven decisions that build winning brands. Founded in 2010, Keen pivoted to a SaaS model, and in 2015, is backed by six investors, completed two rounds of funding over the last two years, and have been listed on Inc. 5000's fastest-growing private companies in America for the last four years. Keen's vision is to build the engine that drives the marketing technology value chain, connecting data to execution, and powering decisions that enable accelerated growth and value creation. Today, we're joined by Keen's CEO and co-founder, Greg Dolan. Greg, welcome to the episode. Thank you. It's great to be with you guys. Really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, and no, we're looking forward to someone who's got a way more professional podcast than some of the we do. So uh, <laughs> right now, I feel like an amateur. But it's great to have you join us today. Um, before we get to the questions, um, what did I miss in my sort of intro about Keen uh, in terms of the narrative, in terms of the basic story? What else do you want the audience to know before we dive into a conversation about uh, a little bit more detail about what you all do? Yeah, absolutely. So we've uh, we've really tried to disrupt the marketing mix industry. So we think of ourselves as a next generation marketing mix solution that's grounded in software. And I'll go into this in a lot more detail, but really starts to change the game and the mindset from strict measurement to decision support and predictive analytics. Uh, we're trying to guide that next decision that marketers are making as they look to deploy their resources. That's terrific. And uh, yeah, we'll get into this, but I think one of the most, uh, I just came back from the Path to Purchase Institute's Future Forward event in New Orleans. And uh, I was in a panel with um, 
April from Spark Foundry, who's like one of the real sort of luminaries of our space on the retail media side, and a guy named Bob Wabel, who runs uh, a lot of commerce marketing for Canagra. And some very nice person asked Bob this really detailed question about, well, you know, how do you merge the retail media data into your marketing mix model and how does that work? And how have you been thinking about that? And Bob's like, oh, no, we don't use marketing mix models anymore. <laughs> like, it's like they just don't help. So I think this conversation, I think, comes at a really opportune time in terms of how the industry is evolving and how the real-time kind of data ecosystem of the digital media landscape and the retail media landscape, I think we're going to push conventional media mix modeling into a new place. So uh, really excited to get into this conversation. But before we do, Greg, let's uh, let's spend a little bit of time on you, man. So the audience knows us pretty well, but they don't know you at all. So tell us a little about your journey and how did you come to sort of uh, found Keen? No, absolutely. I appreciate it. Uh, so I was a CPG guy myself. So I, I started my career as awesome. Yeah, as a CPG. Send you a hat. <laughs> I was a CPG brand marketer and uh, I worked in the food industry. So I started at Nabisco and Kraft Foods, and I was at the Campbell Soup Company for seven years, all in traditional brand roles, more general management, uh, you know, function, had P&L responsibility. And for me, obviously, the biggest lever that I had to allow me to hit my financial targets was marketing and deploying marketing resources to drive profitable demand. Unfortunately, Brian, everything that you just talked about, uh, I faced, and that was a pain point for me. So I had traditional marketing mix. I had reports that were historically focused that were 18 months old, sale data, and I was trying to make the next decision. And I always tell the story when I was at Campbell's, I was managing the V8 brand portfolio at Campbell's. We just spent about a year repositioning the brand, had a brand new campaign, just launched the campaign. And then the the great recession happened, the markets fell apart. And at that point, marketing got blamed for everything. And I couldn't say, you know, here's an external factor that's impacting my business. Marketing is actually helping to offset some of those headwinds. Just didn't have the quantitative analysis to be able to tell that story. And for me, that's really what we were trying to solve at Keen. So I was lucky enough to find my technical co-founder who had been doing, uh, John Bospis, who had been doing marketing mix analysis, consulting on the pharma side at ZS Associates and IMS Health uh, for about a decade. And he saw the world in the same way that I did. We needed to provide a real-time opportunity for marketers to leverage data uh, to not only understand what worked in the past, but more importantly, start guiding decision-making tied to financial results that marketers were going to be held accountable for. So that's that was the idea. Uh, we felt like software was the opportunity. We were a little early to the game in 2010. Still a lot of investment in data and organization of data that was happening at that point. Uh, very low tech adoption at that point, still trying to catch up <laughs> in the industry a little bit, but uh, felt like there was an opportunity to arm marketers with information in real time to make better decisions. So that that's what we started in 2010. We really started, as you mentioned, uh, wrapping consulting around a uh, prototype application that we built in Excel initially and, uh, and invested back in the software development to launch a cloud-based version of the application, which we finally did in 2015, and then pivoted the model to SaaS uh, and have continued to add features and functionality to the system, uh, help to get data integrated into the system more easily in an automated way to keep models up to date so marketers can be making decisions based on the latest information. You made a statement here, Greg. You said, guide decision-making tied to financial results. You can pack a lot of stuff in the guided decision-making path. But when I look at how CPG and retail have evolved over the last three years, I think we don't need to argue that the world has completely changed. The shopper has changed, how the shopper browses, gets introduced to innovation, acquires product, brings it home, whatever the case may be on the go has all changed. So in the marketing world, what used to be a mix looks nothing like the mix today. Like everything has gone digital, like 80, 90, 95%. Maybe there's 10% analog still left. And even that analog is now streaming TV, OTT, things of that nature. So what challenges do you see for the brands that you partner with that you're actually actively trying to solve in the marketplace today? Well, it all started with the external shocks, uh, right? So we had COVID um, and that introduced and, and really started to drive a lot of these changes that we see in the marketplace, more e-com, a lot of our clients went from, you know, 80% brick and mortar to now, you know, 60% and more going through e-commerce channels. And obviously the growth of retail media networks and fragmentation associated with that has created a lot of complexity in the decision-making process. And that's, that's why there is a need for a dynamic system like ours that leverages information and learns from that information as it becomes available. 
and uh, you can learn in real time. So uh, we we did that through COVID with our clients. So how do we introduce a hundred year pandemic into your models and learn from it as we go and how that dynamic shifts the consumer preferences and how consumers are shopping. As an example, you know, we had a client that had 90% of their budget in shopper marketing. Then all of a sudden no one's going into stores. So how do you then pivot from there and, and shift <laughs> shift your dollars to be effective during a time when consumers aren't going into the store. So, you know, again, being able to leverage the knowledge estate as it evolves uh, and new insights emerge is key, which is why software and our system uh, is really starting to take the place of traditional, you know, historical analytics uh, and historical reporting. Yeah. And Greg, by the way, somebody who worked at a shopper marketing agency for the entire, I started at Omnicom Commerce Group, the shopper marketing agencies at Omnicom on March 9th, 2020. Uh, so thank you for your efforts to completely bankrupt us. We appreciate that. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. I just had a little bit of a follow-up for you, Greg, on, on that biggest challenges you see in the marketplace. And it comes back to uh, guided decision-making. So is the philosophy of Keen templatized in terms of guided decision-making or is it a little bit more free-from based on a brand's current situation and a marketing mix model? It's uh, So our setup and implementation is completely uh, customized to the brand itself and the information from the brand. So our methodology is very different than traditional mix and or MTA or those types of solutions. It's omni-channel. Uh, we've developed some IP that is the starting point for our model. So it's Bayesian regression. Uh, we have our marketing elasticity engine, which is a meta model of thousands of coefficients from academic research and uh, elasticity is coming out of our model over the last 13 years. Hey, hey, so we're constantly hey, lear learning. Hey, Greg, sorry, just uh, just quickly for the philosophy majors in the crowd like myself, uh, just explain a little bit about what a meta model is in terms of what that what that means. Yeah, so we're taking blinded coefficients. Uh, so basically output from our models. So how much does a dollar of TV versus a dollar of paid search deliver for a given brand in a category. Uh, and we're feeding that blinded into our model uh, to populate the best information possible. So that is a machine learning model. It's constantly learning from every new data point that's coming into it. So every time a model is published, new elasticities are coming and feeding that information in the model. So anytime we start with a client, it's starting with that knowledge base. Uh, so we can build models with very few data points based on the industry information. You know, we really see value in every single piece of information that a brand has. So we want to leverage that information for the measurement and decision-making process. So that could include historical marketing mix or lift studies or anything that can inform or alter or edit the information that we have in our marketing elasticity engine. So that information is brought to bear. Then we bring in all the time series, marketing activity data, your GRPs, impressions, et cetera, plus your financial data. And the model is instantaneously leveraging all that information to create a predictive model. Uh, and that allows us to customize it to the brand, understand not only what happened in the past, but more importantly, build all those response curves into the future to understand exactly what is optimal across the entire mix based on what financial objective they're looking to achieve. Ask a loaded follow-up question, which um, not loaded, but just <laughs> how different are brands from each other in that regard? Like, I mean, I, I know you're going to tell me every one of them is different because apart from anything else, your economic model relies on it, uh, which is good. But how much variance is there in either the variables that you use or the weighting of them? I'm just kind of curious because um, I think this is one of the issues that I think a lot of agencies are having as they try to figure out how to do battle with this is that not only are all in our case, because we spend a lot of time looking at retail media, not only are the retail media networks different, but the brands that are using them are different. And if the brands that are using them are genuinely so different from each other that it's hard to apply the same model, then as you well know, you've got a 50 variable problem on one side and a 100 variable problem on the other and knock yourself out trying to solve that. So I'm curious to see how different in your experience you found brands are from each other in terms of the data that's most important to get to a quality output. There's a lot more similarities than brands would say there are. And macro trends are pretty similar across. I mean, there are differences by category. Um, but really, it, the, the differences in the data drives the differences in the output, right? So how brands and marketers have executed in the past will impact how they plan next year going forward. The category dynamics, the external factors like seasonality and competitive dynamics, all of that can impact 
the way the investment plan is built and the potential impact of that on the financial results. So we take all of that into account when we're building the models, uh, you know, both the internal, how they've executed in the past, which will influence those elasticities differently, as well as the dynamics that we're accounting for on the in the external environment, like competitive dynamics, macroeconomic factors, seasonality, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So in essence, it's the rhythm of the category that drives things as much as anything else. And, and that would be, you know, Shri and I both go back to a world before the internet and, uh, and sort of doing like trade planning and stuff. And that was always the thing that mattered the most when you're trying to trade plan across different brands was like, you know, for all of my brand is so different. There were just some foundational category truths, some macro truths, and then the brand truths are important. But getting those category truths and those macro truths, right, is, uh, is actually super critical. I do think, and it's just an observation, I think because the digital world tends to process problems granularity up rather than macro down. I think there's some confusion today in the retail media space when people that are used to going granular up run into people that know that sometimes the best way to solve the problem is macro down. That And that problem-solving intersection sounds like a place where, where you guys kind of hang out and try to help sort of uh, decode that a little bit for clients. Absolutely. And, you know, granular up presents a problem because not all data is that granular. So you still have to allocate some spend down to a more granular level. So there's always in the modeling effort assumptions that need to be made around how certain data is impacting different consumer journeys. Um, so we we believe that, you know, in that decision focus and leveraging, putting all the data on the same playing field at the same level, leveraging the best information possible to get to an outcome across all channels. Uh, and that's really where we focus. It's that decision form and making sure that we understand all the trade-offs, which is the difference between us and, you know, marketing mix and traditional MTA, which obviously relies on personal level data and cookies and, and more of that information to do their modeling. We can model at the level of the decision and understand all the trade-offs across the mix. The, the other piece I think I would say is that a lot of the digital focus measurement solutions will focus very much on the bottom of the funnel. Uh, and what we have incorporated in our marketing elasticity engine is uh, timing impacts of marketing as well and long-term effects, which is also very unique for us. So we can really understand the full funnel impact and all the interactions from top of the funnel down through the transaction driving tactics that drive short-term volume to really get that understanding of you know how all of it's working together to not only drive volume tomorrow, but more importantly, I think drive value uh, long-term in building brands. I want to roll back a little bit to elasticities that you mentioned in question two. Sure. The last two years, because the supply changes have defied all elasticity logic from a absolute price point perspective. What's your opinion go forward, especially since you work in this space? As far as elasticities not changing or not being around? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the elasticity is out of whack. They're making no sense, right? Like traditional model, Bayesian shrinkage you referred to. Elasticity means a lot because it helps us forecast and determine how we plan and how we create our models. But in a world where elasticities are irrelevant, are you simply excluding it from the model? Are you doing something with it? Uh, they, they evolve, they learn. So um, it's gonna leverage the most recent information as it builds though. Uh, so pre 2020, it looked very different than post 2020, right? Uh, and we have a lot of data points that have informed the model that have pointed to different trends and that evolution of the elasticities over time. So we could see the lower effectiveness of meta over time and more effectiveness of native ads in our model over time. So we could see that in real time. That's really driven by the machine learning. I said the word, Brian. So I'm sure you'll come back to the tech part of this at some point. But before we do that, I'm going to get into two, what I would call very marketing specific terms that even salespeople are starting to understand these days, which is the work you do in marketing mix. Explain why MTA, multi-touch attribution, and marketing mix modeling are not the one and same thing. And then what do you feel and use as the better one? So I don't, I wouldn't use either one of them. <laughs> so uh, I don't know, I just, if I have a little bit of bias there, it might be a controversial take. But I guess there is a role for measurement. Um, you know, MTA is obviously modeling the customer journey, which is primarily for primarily digital campaigns or digital programming. Uh, marketing mix is a, uh, you know, traditional time series regression, econometric modeling exercise where you're looking at store level data and trying to infer uh, impact from all the marketing tactics you have in the mix. 
again, I think both of them are very kind of measurement focused. So if you look at the traditional players, it's, you know, let me get the data. There's a lot of data wrangling in both exercises. Let me put together a custom analysis and look backward to see how the previous brand manager performed. It's not my problem anymore. Right. Uh, but what it doesn't do is it focuses on historical ROI and, and that static ROI in the past. What it doesn't do is focus on the marginal ROI. So the impact of the next dollar invested. And that's really the the big differentiator for us. We try to get our clients to spend about five minutes on historicals, right? So what happened in the past? How do you explain it? But let's take your $1.10 ROI and make it a $1.50, or let's get to an understanding of if you have another dollar to invest, where would you put it? And I think that's really the shift in conversation we're trying to have with our clients uh, and why we believe we can measure and provide the guidance for the next decision and, and hold marketing accountable. I know uh, just saw a study where you know 65% of marketers are being asked to be more accountable around marketing's impact on financial results in the bottom line. So, you know, that that pressure necessitates an understanding of making sure that you're doing the right things looking forward and continuous improvement towards those financial goals. Excellent. And uh, just a quick reminder uh, to our audience, we're speaking to Greg Dolan, the CEO and co-founder of uh, Keen Decision Systems. So, um, Greg, we're chatting a little bit, and we alluded to some of this earlier, um, despite your trying to destroy the shopper marketing industry during the pandemic, um, you've also done some interesting work in the shopper space. So what, what challenges are you helping clients overcome there that are a little bit more specific to what we might call sort of more traditional shopper marketing? So you talked a lot about shopper and retail media networks, and we see that as a growing use case for our system. So as I talked about before, we can model at the level of the decision. A lot of times we can look at it at portfolios. So you know, how do we optimize uh, you know, brand A versus brand B as a CMO? How do I think about allocating resources at the brand level? Then at the macro brand level, and we could dig down to deeper levels of granularity and use cases, and shopper is one of those areas. And we know that the sales uh, folks that are walking in to do joint business planning with Target and Walmart have to be uh, well-versed in understanding the full mix of potential spending options with that retailer. And that's essentially what we're modeling. So we can drill it down and build a model set up and implement it to really focus on you know, what does a full program look like at Target? So what does retail media look like? What does shopper programming look like? Uh, what does trade look like? How do we account for all the stuff that's happening outside of Target? How do we understand what's happening, what Target media is delivering in terms of impact outside of Target? So we can look at all that and kind of build that case to understand uh, and, and arm the marketer and the sales folks with information to say, you know, maybe you need to reallocate some of that Target money to Walmart or Amazon or another retailer. Uh, or get that money back to do more, you know, offline brand building, top of the funnel activity. So it's really looking at all of that information and being able to model all the trade-offs across the entire mix. I got about 200 follow-up questions on this, so we're going to go for a second. Um, so uh, <laughs> yeah. I guess in your experience with clients, then as that process unfolds, because, you know, the the overwhelming logic of what you've described makes sense. So like you sat down and told anybody, you know, anybody anywhere in the world, is that what you want as an outcome? People go, yeah, that makes sense. Why doesn't that happen all the time? And as you work with clients, what are some of the barriers that you see they need to overcome and how do they overcome those barriers in order to be able to get to a place where they can use your system to do what you just described? Yeah, I think um, a structurally uh, siloed planning is a is a challenge, right? So you, I think when you look at media being in a different place than shopper being in a different place than trade, you have to be able to pull them all together and really understand the right levers across that entire mix to be able to make that. And that, that requires a lot of collaboration across those groups from a planning perspective to be able to make that happen. Um, the other piece is data. Data is always, regardless of what we're doing, we use less data to be able to get to the outputs that we do given the approach that we take. But still, there's challenges sometimes in, in terms of you know getting the customer data necessary to do that modeling. We have some unique ways uh, and partnerships with data providers that allow us to do that. Uh, so we're uniquely position to be able to deliver against this use case. But, you know, data uh, organization and having the information necessary is always a, is always a challenge. Uh, and then, you know, being able to ultimately execute whatever the recommendations are coming out of the system is probably the third. And I think that, 
you know, that comes with confidence in the model over time. And a lot of times we'll see our clients take a couple of recommendations that are the safest recommendations and start to lean into those. And once they have confidence in the recommendations coming out of the system, they'll lean into more of the recommendations and more of the opportunity. And I guess my, my other follow-up question would be in the experience that, that you've had there, are there, and this will be a similar question to the one I asked you earlier, actually. So if you're looking at Target versus Walmart, do you find that the issues clients are having or the things they're doing well and the opportunities that they have, do they vary a lot by retail or are they fairly consistent in terms of what the balances of resources and what resources typically are reallocated in order to get to a better spend? It's, uh, I will give you the similar answer as before. I think it's, um, there are some similarities, but I think at the same time, you know, if data is different, it's going to provide a different outcome. If there's different category dynamics within a retailer, it's going to give you a different answer. And I think being able to tell that story is really important. Obviously, every retailer is demanding more dollars and the budgets aren't getting bigger. So, you know, how do you go in and make sure that you have a solid story as a brand to say, no, Walmart, I understand, but unless I get more distribution, I can't spend this. I'm, this is delivering 30 cents on the dollar versus another retailer where I can get more or I can get a bigger return if I bring it back to more traditional tactics outside of the store. So I think that's the key piece is, you know, knowledge and information is really uh, going to be the way that marketers can drive leverage in the conversation and also drive better results. The one thing that kind of surfaces at the top, you described data as the most important asset here and that depending on the type of data that a brand has access to or is able to enable, the outcomes are obviously going to look radically different. But today we live in a world where retailers are truly sharing the data. And I feel it's like a unlimited data mechanism. There's into a model, you can throw in econometric data, seasonality data, just so many things that are now retail media is the latest, hardest trend in the world these days. To be able to process that kind of stuff and get genuine models that are learning, you need tech. That word that pops to mind is artificial intelligence, better known as AI. But you said you guys have been in that space machine learning for a while. But what's changed now that the whole world is catching up with artificial intelligence versus just you were doing it yesterday and now the world is catching up? Is that truly the case? And then how are you exploiting it? Thank God. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we have been doing it for a while and this has been our vision. Um I think we needed some bigger players and a bigger movement to really start to uh, build trust in algorithms and build trust in AI. And I think we're going to obviously benefit from that as that happens. Uh, so that's really what it is. And at the end of the day, you know, I see a world where this entire ecosystem is automated and continuously learns with new information. So data is coming in. It's automatically analyzed historically. It provides a recommendation for what to do next and optimize with a forecast that you can execute and a plan that an agency can execute or we can execute programmatically. And then it kind of feeds back into the process. So uh, and that also includes, you know, creative elements, obviously, as well. So it's not only the channel, but it's the, the creative pieces as well to make sure that those are optimized with the channel that the consumer is is uh, consuming the media. That notion on trust the algorithm is really interesting, actually. And it reminded me of a conversation I was listening to. It wasn't, I was in an audience listening to the chief merchant of one of America's larger retailers. And they were describing the journey they were going on to more, this was on the merchandising side, actually, not the media side, but just to more, more store-specific planograms and more clusterable sets. And the conversation kind of unfolded. And we discovered that one of the biggest barriers to that wasn't the data, was the merchants. <laughs> like The merchants wouldn't let the algorithm do the work, right? And the minute the merchants saw that the algorithm was producing an outcome that was suboptimal, they try to fix it. And what you do then is you get in the way of the machine learning. Like if you manually interfere with a process where the machine is trying to learn, the machine doesn't know that you've manually interfered. So what the machine learns is incorrect. And all you're doing there is you're slowing down the process by which the machine can get smarter. And I just find this whole idea, and this is one of the things where, look, I mean, I think the uh, deification of Amazon's skill sets has gotten, I think we've all gotten a little carried away with that, to be honest. I think Amazon does some things pretty well and some things pretty not so well. I do think one of the things that the Amazon model lends itself extraordinarily well to is letting the machines learn. And then people know that their job there is to let the machines learn. And as a result, their machines learn faster than other people's machines. 
I think it's, I just thought that that trust the algorithm point is a really interesting one as humans look at it and just don't often have the patience to watch an AB test take place. If they're, uh, if they feel like their livelihood depends on that AB test being right immediately, they're not always willing to let the machine learn a little bit. So, um, I thought that that's a really, I just thought it was a really interesting observation. You're talking about introducing bias, right? Which, uh, will obviously impact the way that the algorithm learns, which is very true, right? So I think, you know, if you let it go and you let it learn and then you trust that it will show you the path to better optimization. Well, yeah, and I think this is one of the areas where, and this is going to be a major transition for all of the work that brands are doing with retailers because, you know, whether it's retail media or whether it's shopper marketing, whatever it is, I mean, so much of that work historically is more manual and less machine-driven that, the trying to convert these manual processes over is just really interesting. So I think it's a, I think there's going to be a very interesting discipline, not around machine learning, which I think, you know, computational skill will take care of, but almost machine teaching, like how do companies get good at teaching machines to do stuff? And um, anyway, I could talk about, I'm just rambling now. That, that's well, that's, that's going to be a key position for these companies to fill because they're going to have to, you're going to have algorithm trainers, essentially, right, to be able to understand how it works versus having maybe data scientists or other other positions that are manually analyzing the data, right? So it's more, let's make sure that the algorithms are working uh, and providing good output for the decision-making process. The thing I've been pondering on, Brian, in, in this particular space is we genuinely live in a world of unlimited data at this stage. There's no cap on the data you can procure. And the, even though there's a lot of concerns on privacy and all the stuff that took place with the cookie-less world, there's more data today than there was two years ago pre-COVID, which is like mind-boggling if you thought about it. The part, Greg, that confuses me still is, is AI really uh, the engine and backbone of scaling and analysis? Or is the engine and backbone for giving you results that you can take actionable decisions on? Or is it both? It's both. It, absolutely. It's it's scalable insights. It's speed to insights. It's um, it's being able to leverage all that information stream that you're talking about uh, and leveraging it towards a specific outcome that could be actioned. Right. So we're taking all that information and we're providing a roadmap, a plan that a media agency can go buy. Uh, and ultimately actualizing that as it becomes available. So I think part of the problem with not leveraging and leaning on tech is that the world's becoming way too fast and way too complex to do anything manually. Uh, so you have to keep up with the speed of decision-making. So sometimes that also means not boiling the ocean from a data perspective. And we talk about uh, not more data, but the right data for the decision and making sure that we're forming the models with the right information. It doesn't have to be all the information, but it has to be the right information to make sure that we have a good outcome that we could trust. From a company perspective, then therefore, are you sucking this AI and ML completely into the algorithm? Which means the key question I have for you is, are you through via modeling enabling real-time adjustment and optimization of campaigns? Uh, yeah, in-campaign optimization. So we're, we're not modeling at that granular level, we're working towards that. So if you think it's, we're modeling a, a level up uh, from an omni-channel perspective, but as soon as data becomes available at any level in any model, the models can be updated instantaneously, right? So we're big believers in that every data point is important and can inform the model. So as you get new information, new experience, that should be fed in. And we could do that in an iterative way, which is also unique in, in our space. So a traditional marketing mix will wait for all the data to come in to be able to build a model. We do that on an iterative basis. So if the TV is on a, a, a longer time lag, that could come in after the digital information. We're constantly learning as the new information becomes available. So Greg, you've been talking a lot, I think, about um, I think some of the things that make keen difference from an approach point of view, from a data utilization point of view. And I think just overall, you know, I mean, we do talk to a fair number of tech providers in, in the space. And I think the background that, that you've got, you know, in the actual operating world, uh, it seems to be giving y'all a perspective on how to solve the actual problems as opposed to having a solution that's desperately searching for a problem to go fix. Um, so that sounds cool. Apart from some of those observations, um, how else would you characterize the things that make Keen's either abilities um, or its solutions different than you know, other things people could get to solve some of the problems that you solve. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think it's the the focus on decision making and the tide of the financial results and long term value creation and being able to quantify that is probably the biggest thing that that we do. Um, so we are leveraging all that information through Bayesian regression, our own our own IP, um, including the understanding of how each marketing tactic uh, impacts the business over time. So we're actually optimizing marketing on a weekly basis into the future because we understand response curves on a weekly basis into the future based on that timing impact. So uh, an outcome of that is that a lot of times we see our CPG clients spend way too much during high seasonal periods. So how much am I spending if I'm a candy company on Halloween, as an example? And all the time, based on our ability to optimize weekly, we see that they're overspending from a profitability standpoint in those seasons which provides an opportunity cost uh, that limits their ability to support the brand outside of those windows, right? So we actually find the right amount of spend each week accounting for seasonality, but we'll generally see that, you know, it allows for more continuity of spend and support over time as well, given that we're looking at it on a weekly basis. So that's really unique from our perspective and gives the marketer a totally different perspective on how not only to deploy their mix, uh, but also, you know, across time as well and where to find every pocket of profitability possible. Um, so we can really look over time and see how marketers are building brands and building value over time and start connecting that to true shareholder value uh, gains over time as well. And that's all delivered through software. So it's it's delivered faster speed to insights, time to value, um, and a real-time understanding as information becomes available. So that's that's really what marketers need given how fast-paced the environment, how fast it's evolving over time as well. What a transformational world we live in in this kind of post-COVID era and the learnings we've had over COVID. I want to come back to what differentiates you, right? I'd like for you to condense and give me one sentence. Why should a brand go to Keen? What's that one sentence? Is it automation? Is it AI? Is it data? Is it real-time optimization? Those are a lot of words. But what's the one thing you think stands out? Now, this is an overused term, but it's growth. And we can we can actually prove the financial return of the recommendations coming out of our system. And we do an analysis here every year that's updated. So we can actually see what would you have done without Keen? What were the financial results delivered through Keen's recommendation? And what's the delta? And on average, in the first year, we see about a 25% improvement in profitability associated with the recommendations coming out of our system. So we're driving real dollars and cents for brands. We're linking those marketing decisions directly to the financial outcomes. And that's what marketers are being held accountable for now. Is it fair, Greg, for me then to ask, what's the R square of that outcome? Are you closer to a one in that case? Again, we we look at all the statistics in our models are completely transparently provided, all the response curves, all the risk curves, everything. Uh, we also provide a forecast associated with every single scenario that we run and a plan that's executed. So we look at forecast accuracy. And in most cases, as a starting point, we are under 4% error in terms of forecasting. And that improves over time. So the, as the model learns more and gets more information, it will continue to tighten. So it starts out really accurate and then it gets better over time. This is the last question, Greg, but here on the CPG guys, the last question always goes fast forward. I wonder where I got that name from. Um, so we look forward into the future. Marketing analytics world has definitely changed in the last five years. Even in the pre-COVID world, it was transforming. We had the early signs of Retail media, real-time optimization became realistic due to automation, but data sets have exploded these days. What's your prediction for the future of the space? Uh, connected applications and platforms. And I think we see marketers you know, trying to buy different technology to do certain jobs or solve certain problems. But there's an opportunity to start integrating those pieces into a tech stack and an ecosystem that answers a lot of questions at one time and work together, right? So as I was talking about before, it's those data sources that we've been working really hard on making sure that we get that information in through ETLs and other kind of data integrations uh, to be able to analyze it. We then need to be able to potentially take the recommendations that are coming out of our system and tie it directly to you know, programmatic buying systems, as an example. So how do we go directly into a programmatic media buy and then that ecosystem will continue to kind of feed back into the new data, right? So uh, that's where I kind of see the the market going as we continue to evolve and marketers start to adopt and get more comfortable with technology over time. So 
you know, just read the uh, Christine Mormon CMO survey for this year that just came out. And there is a shift from focusing on data to focusing on the right technology, right? So how do we, we got the data now, how do we get the right mix of technology that works together to be able to enable the type of productivity that we're looking for? Yeah, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to the day when the conversation is less about the acquisition of data and, you know, absurd direct-to-consumer platforms from large brands that are out there to try to collect first-party data and all these. It's like the data is good and you need some, but what you really need to figure out is how you're going to use that data, what you're going to link it to and what that data connects to. So, Couldn't have said it better myself. I completely agree. I just want to reflect on the last statement you made. To me, what my big takeaway in the future of this space is it's like a connected marketing automation, like the 360 of marketing makes analysis. Data is continuously feeding real-time optimization, which allows better campaigns, better hyper-targeting of a campaign as a result, which means the ROI across the board should be real-time and awesome. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's... uh. Well, I think this conversation is about clean rooms, right? Where people are like, well, who owns the clean room? It's like, well, if that's the question you're asking about clean rooms, you don't really understand what clean rooms do. It's like, it doesn't matter. Because in Kavita's absence here, we don't have clean rooms in this house. (laughs) (laughs) It was was funny. I was talking to uh, some people that were doing a a pitch for a client who was looking for a global solution to try to optimize stuff. And, uh, we were going to go down a, a really deep rabbit hole with clean rooms and stuff like that. So you got to realize these people have a lot of business and markets where a clean room data strategy is somebody sweeping up the room where the receipt boxes are. <laughs> like that's their <laughs> clean room strategy. We don't really need that. So um, wait, that's not what it is. Cause in the absence of career, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm like reliant on a maiden now to help me with clean rooms. Well, <laughs> oh, Shree, that's good. Shree, please, please do. Greg, it's a miracle how he lets me get away with this stuff. Share your privilege with the audience way more freely. We'll we'll do a whole podcast on Shree, the hardship of Shree's life later today. Um, Greg's now going to leave because he doesn't want to hear about any of this. But uh, before we go, I just want to remind the audience of the cpgguys.com where you can find all of our content. And if you think you or your company has got some thought leadership that you want to contribute to this community discussion, drop us an email at contact at cpgguys.com. Maybe you can join us on the podcast. Please don't forget to drop us a rating at cpgguys.com, in particular for some of the fledgling podcasts like Say Fast Forward, which will be launching soon, but as well as the podcast itself. Uh, good reviews in particular really do help people find the content and really uh, and really help uh, find the message. So um, you can drop us a rating at cpgguys.com on the navigation bar at the top of the page. And thank you, as always, to our more than 21,000 followers within the CPG Guys family that make doing all this super worthwhile. So, um, hey, Greg, thanks for joining us today. This is a fascinating conversation. And, uh, you know, I look forward to continuing the dialogue with you as you continue the journey to try to help uh, brands and retailers navigate all this stuff. I really appreciate the opportunity. really enjoyed the conversation and uh, looking forward to keeping in touch. Terrific. Shri, thank you for uh, coming back from the other side of the world and uh, co-hosting for us today. And be curious for your sort of a recap on uh, all of what we've heard today. Thank you, Brian. This is one of my more favorite topics, marketing automation. I'm right in the middle of this in my day job. So before we start, though, Greg, jokes apart on the clean rooms, I'm making an assumption, obviously, with being as tech savvy in a tech platform you are, clean rooms is just in your DNA at this point. Is that accurate? That That is accurate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's just get that out of the way. So we started up top, folks, with marketing mix solutions being grounded on software, which means at the end of the day, the word that comes to me is automation. And then Greg said, he's a CPG guy himself. We love that. You come from Kraft, you come from Campbell's, you worked on the V8 brand in particular, which is awesome. And I remember back in the days when V8 was getting launched and starting to get into distribution, the importance of marketing and media, and more importantly, upper funnel than lower funnel. These days, we seem to obsess media on lower funnel because of e-commerce and digital. But I want to remind our audience, as Greg, you rightfully said, media is always full funnel. It's never one funnel, one piece of the funnel. And then uh, another statement you made working with Keen for a brand, what you get is you get guided decision making tied to financial results. And later on, when I asked you, what's the one statement you said growth? So that kind of ties back very well into the statement you made right at the end. I think we all agree that COVID changed a lot. Ecom became a focus due to which you also started reporting on ROI, 
ROAS, things of that nature, and lower funnel. But again, reminded everybody, it's not just a lower funnel, but it's a full funnel, including upper funnel brand activity campaigns, acquiring audience, trial, repeat, things of that nature. I asked you about customized modeling, and your answer was you have a proprietary IP, but you are using Bayesian shrinkage. Let's get that. For those that care, such as me, regression, Bayesian shrinkage are not the same. And you are truly omni-channel. It's not, you're not leaning on one type of data sets. It's many types of data sets. But the exact word you said was thousands of coefficients, including updated elasticities for today's world. We got into elasticities a little bit. Last two years, they look different, but sounds like you're using real time. And then we also talked about macro trends, kind of came to a conclusion that macro trends are similar for everybody to deal with. So that's pretty useful data top level that people should be using. But how you source that macro trend, what type of data you're bringing, who you bring it from may actually impact what your model looks like. I've said full funnel enough time, so I won't repeat it. We jumped into the shopper space, surround sound, retail media, impact of retail media on the shopping piece of this and the journey, um, the actual halos that that causes in the non-digital methodology being used to kind of do the e-commerce space, including the in-store piece of this. And then guidance on reallocating to upper funnel or brand building based on what the analysis says in the shopper space. Pretty awesome, if you ask me. Talked a little bit about structurally siloed planning being a challenge. I do see that in brands to the day, but using software automation, doing real-time planning may help overcome that, especially with all these data sets we're talking about. There's a wrap-up here. Tech is your anchor. AI, machine learning. It's the way, but the good part that I think you geared to on those is you've been doing that for a while, but the industry is starting to trust it and you're able to leverage the fact that they're starting to trust it. I wish the industry had gotten that faster, but here we are today, it's there now. So, which means if the trust is there, that allows iterative digital modeling, allowing for campaign optimization. We declared that's what you focus on. And lastly, as I wrap up here, as we got into the future, we talked about response curves coming weekly to shape the future. Pretty cool. A weekly. I'll repeat that weekly. And uh, we wrapped it up with what do you do at the end of the day? The 360 of marketing mix and analysis automation, which means you're enabling real-time campaign planning, hyper-targeting, and adjustment on the fly as required. How'd I do, Greg? Fantastic. Uh, awesome summary. Yeah, that was very terrific. Um, we're, I'm going to sign up for your PhD level Bayesian, whatever it is, um, sort of uh, modeling <laughs> class. Bayesian shrinkage. Bayesian shrinkage. Um, <laughs> that is that's nothing to do with being in the pool. Make him say it right. Bayesian shrinkage. So, um, all right. Anyway. So, uh, well, look, Greg, thank you for joining us. Uh, Shri, thank you for uh, joining me as a host today. And this is uh, for the CPG guys. I'm Brian Gilderberg signing off. I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. Content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.